As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop Chef Quality Pots and Pans at MadeInCookware.com. We went into Afghanistan to benefit the United States. We went into Iraq to benefit the United States. We pretended that it was to help Iraqis and to help Afghans. But, I mean, any uh, objective observer just has to look at the last 20 years to know that that was bullshit. From Crooked Media, this is Unholier Than That. I'm your host, Philip Picardi. A lot of this season, we've been exploring things like resurrection, rebirth, the whole kind of idea that we are transforming ourselves or, for better or for worse, moving into a new chapter of our lives, especially after coming out of such a difficult time in American history, what with the pandemic, the election, etc. One thing that really struck me, though, was in the past few months especially, a certain news cycle has felt oddly cyclical oddly like a full circle kind of moment that was like the specters of our past coming back to haunt us. At the same time that New York City was honoring the people we lost during the attacks of September 11th and the 20th anniversary of those attacks, we also were in the midst of pulling American troops out of Afghanistan to devastating human rights consequences. We left many people behind who supported the American government and the American cause And of course, there were endless stories of families who were caught in the fray, of people who died. And since what the Taliban is going to do and look like now that they have control back over Afghanistan, this whole kind of failed experiment of the war on terror there has disastrous consequences in Afghanistan, of course. But maybe one thing we've not explored as much is what kind of consequences it's had here in America to our own neighbors, to the people we interact with every day. And how the attitudes of the war on terror, how we came to see them as normal, how we adopted them as just givens without ever really analyzing how the media and the government played a really strong role in informing our own views that were intrinsically Islamophobic and and really demonized people abroad in a spectacular and, and horrifying way. So for this episode, it's not so much about resurrection. It's it's really about revisiting because you don't want to go into a new version of yourself or a new version of ourselves or a new version of this world without really owning and taking accountability for what we've done in our past, right? So to join me today, I have Reza Aslan, who is an incredible journalist, a scholar of religions, and who has a lot to say about the war on Afghanistan, the war on terror, and what it all means for us and our very divided nation going forward. Here's Reza. So this season, we're exploring all sorts of themes that have to do with kind of renaissance, right? This idea that folks have gone through various transformations for better or for worse, especially in the past year. And one thing I wanted to include in this season was not so much the concept of a, of a renaissance, but really the concept of revisiting something from our past that has taken on 
a new life and certainly, hopefully, a new understanding of events that happened in the past. And the two things that really struck out to me were kind of honoring this 20th anniversary of September 11th, and also, at the same time, the United States' decision to pull out all troops and military intervention from Afghanistan. And those two things felt, I guess, prescient. I'm not even sure what the word is. Maybe ironic to be happening all at once and for there to be so much attention and fervor around the good, like, you know, the well-being and the goodwill of the Afghanistan people and this kind of fundamental, it seems, still and lingering misunderstanding of what the situation is abroad over there and kind of this these questions of empathy that really have been, I think, surrounding a lot of consciousness around Afghanistan for so long, but have never really managed to capture the full American attention the way that they have in the past month and a half. And so as I, as we're kind of revisiting these things, especially from a new lens, I just, I guess I just wanted to start by offering you a chance to say like, what's going through your head now that it's been a couple of, a few weeks, even a month since the official removal and um, I, I want to say the dust has settled, but of course it hasn't, right? But what are what are you feeling right now? And what are you holding right now? I mean, there's so much to say about the war in Afghanistan. Um, it's ending the disastrous way in which we removed American military personnel. But the thing that I keep coming back to, because it's a subject that's very close to my heart, professionally and, and emotionally, personally, is the tens of thousands of Afghans that we left behind, particularly the so-called SIVs. These are the Afghan interpreters, personnel, who risk their lives, the lives of their families, in order to help the American mission succeed, and who did so because they were explicitly promised that in exchange for their help, they would receive visas allowing them and their families to escape from the inevitable revenge that would be um, sought for them by the Taliban and their allies um, by getting safe passage to the United States. Of those tens of thousands of Afghans who qualified for the SIV program, a very small fraction Um, were able to leave before the American military withdrawal. And those tens of thousands that were left behind after the American military withdrawal, the Biden administration has said in no uncertain terms will not be receiving those SIVs. And this is, to me, it's just a horrific tragedy on two levels. One, obviously the human tragedy. I mean, these individuals have already been hunted down. They and their families have been slaughtered. Um, We receive reports all the time of this happening. And they're being slaughtered because they believed us. But more sort of globally, what we have done to these Afghan interpreters is, I think, emblematic of how we have treated this entire region for generations, long before the war on terror, long before the war on Afghanistan. This region in many ways 
has been a proxy not just for American foreign policy interests, and we do have a host of foreign policy interests in the the wider Middle East that are complex and have, you know, far more to do with our own personal interests here in the United States than anything else. But it's become a proxy for this impression that we have of ourselves as a nation. In so many ways, we have used the Middle East, Muslims, Afghanistan, Iraq, as a kind of negative pole for defining ourselves. You know, it's been very difficult (laughs) in this 21st century to truly say what it means to be American. But it's pretty easy to say what is not American. Mm -hmm. You just point at someone and say, not them. And so when you hear the rhetoric that we have used about the Middle East, about Afghanistan, about Muslims in general, that, um, oh, there's no separation of, of religion and state in those places of the world, which is absurd. I mean, it's actually far more rigid separation of religion and state uh, in places like Syria or in Afghanistan or in Lebanon than here in the United States, by far the most religious uh, developed country in the world and and the the country in which we not only um, allow for religion to have a foothold in our politics, we literally encourage it, right? We actually provide platforms whereby the voice of religion can be um, emphasized, you know, over other voices. Um, Or that, you know, they, uh, well, they don't treat their women right in the Middle East. Muslim countries have had more female heads of state um, than the United States has because the United States has had zero. (laughs) Um, You know, we we have used that part of the world as a kind of mirror to define ourselves for generations. And the war in Afghanistan, the haphazard way in which we entered it, the betrayal of that country in sort of turning our attention away from it and moving on to the next country, you know, in our in our global war on terror. And then the absolutely irresponsible way in which we left that war, to me, is just the perfect emblem of how we think about Muslims in the Middle East. Absolutely. Yeah, just horrifying, horrifying in every way. Absolutely. Thank you so much for hitting on so many points in one really concise answer. Let's start with the myth of secularism, because something you've written about before is sort of this American imagination that there is secularism here and also that religion is distinct from culture, right? And, you know, how you've illustrated how religion actually infiltrates American culture and therefore American politics or American politics and therefore American culture, you know, whichever way, it's all symbiotic in, in my eyes. This is a really dangerous perception that a lot of Americans have. They, a lot of Americans, even liberal Americans, you know, I would say, especially liberal Americans, have this idea that religion doesn't belong in government and therefore it, it isn't in government. And also that only the right wing wants religion in government. These are all lies of the American imagination. And this, um, the way that we've convinced ourselves that secularism is real has allowed us to think that we were entering 
Afghanistan or invading Afghanistan for some sort of noble reason that had nothing to do with Christian supremacy and the remnants of Christian supremacy, which have always made Christians believe that conquest was their birthright and that anyone who didn't accept the word of Jesus was worth conquering and subjugating, right? And so this through line of American politics and American imperialism is something that the public, I mean, it's something that's really hard to grasp with. A, because it challenges our notions of what our government really is, but also it challenges our notions of who we are in in this system. And I think that's the even harder part. Um, When we talk about this myth of secularism and the way that culture, um, religion has bled into culture in America, can you explain a little bit about how you see that creating this justification for the atrocities we've committed abroad? Yeah, such a great way to to frame this um, question. Yeah, I mean, look, first of all, just to just to kind of define terms, you're right. You know, we use the term secularism when what we really mean is secularization. Secularism mm. is a political ideology, the purpose of which is to remove, by force if necessary, religion from public life. There are a number of secular countries in the world. France is a secular country in which outward forms of religion in public life are illegal <laughs> and and forcibly removed. Um, Turkey used to be a secular country. Same thing. Egypt is a secular country, which is weird because I think a lot of Americans would be like, yeah, but they're Muslims. So aren't they, don't they just believe that like the Quran is law? Egypt is a country in which if you're a politician running for office and you mention the Quran or you mention, you know, the religious motivations for you running for office or the fact that you want to instill quote unquote Muslim morals or values into politics, you're never heard from again. And I don't mean like you're silenced. I mean, you literally are disappeared. Um, Those are secular countries. Mm. We are at least somewhat in form, a secularized country. And the difference between secularism and secularization is that secularization means um, the Uh, separation of religious and political powers so that the religious authorities are not the political authorities, as as is the case in, say, um, uh, Iran, right, Where where the religious authorities are the political authorities. There's no division between the two. But even that, I think, is a stretch in the United States. Look, the conviction that the United States is a, quote, Christian nation— Uh, appointed by God, you know, to sort of establish Christian values throughout the rest of the world um, is baked into the American consciousness. It's baked into the American identity, which is why I'm so glad that that you said, you know, oftentimes we think that this is sort of a conservative viewpoint, but that liberals are just as guilty of it. Because for us, Christianization and Americanization have sort of bled into a single ideal, right? I often say it's the cross and the flag as a single emblem. So when you hear people saying that we need to bring American ideals and values to X, Y, and Z, well, there really isn't a way to distinguish between American values and Christian values in a lot of our political rhetoric on the left or the right. And this, as I say, is very much baked into the very foundation of the United States. I mean, people tend to forget that, you know, the Puritans who settled the the U.S. truly believed that they were making an exodus into 
um, the new Israel. They use these terms, right? The new Israel, the new Jerusalem, right? Uh, Herman Melville had this whole line where he's like, Americans are the new chosen people, quote, the Israel of our time, right? Jonathan Edwards, this kind of, you know, the, the guy that everybody read in like, you know, uh, in college, right? The sort of 18th century fire and brimstone uh, uh, preacher. He would describe America as the new Canaan, right? That, uh, that America has received the true religion of the old world. And that sure. concept was obviously revitalized by Reagan and the city on the hill analogy. This idea that America is a sacred nation, right? That it was, it's distinct from all other nations and how it was born, why it was born. And so as a result of that, it has this added burden, Mm -hmm. this burden to bring Americanization, qua Christianization, um, to the rest of the world. And this yes. isn't new. You heard this same kind of stuff, you know, during World War II where, you know, FDR would say things like there isn't enough room in the universe for both Hitler and God. And yes. so therefore we we as the as the chosen nation have to go and and uh you know rid the world of this particular evil. And it certainly was baked into the war on terror. I mean, let's not forget the way that George W. Bush, I know it's been like 20 years, but the way that George W. Bush launched the war on terror was by explicitly referring to it as a crusade. He said it's a, right. it's a, it's a crusade language. against evildoers. Exactly. Um, and, you know, crusade is a very specific term. It, it means holy war. That's what crusade means. And I know that a lot of people have since, since then said, you know, well... It's just rhetoric, and he was talking, you know, the, the language of religion, because the language of religion has the most currency for the masses. It's true. It's true. That's how it works in the United States. doesn't matter who you are. You know, we're a very religious country. One third of this country, that's more than 120 million of us, um, self-identifies as evangelical. So, yeah, I get it. You want to talk to America. You have to talk the language of religion. Obama had to figure out how to do that, right? It just it's just how we how we function. But let's not forget that the rest of the world actually hears us. My favorite I bring this line out all the time because somebody talked to bin Laden, you know, right after the war in Afghanistan started and asked him about this, you know, notion of the crusade. Um, and he very specifically said, and I have the line here, our goal is for our Muslim community to unite in the face of this Christian crusade. Bush said it himself, crusade. People make apologies for him. They say he didn't mean to say that this was a crusader war, even though he himself said it was. The odd thing about this is that he has taken the words right out of our mouths. Right. That's the ideology in which America sees itself in the world, the role that we play. And it, it's it's still that role to this day. It was also the founding principle of how our country was quote-unquote discovered, right? Columbus was here, sent by Spain, a deeply Catholic nation that was closing its borders and exterminating folks who were Jewish or Muslim, right? Sent here, saw indigenous people and said they were blank slates, right? And, and then, you know, here comes the forced conversion of indigenous people and the so-called Christian kind of blessing, really, of the transatlantic slave trade. These things are a part of American history, the foundations of this country. And the mentality that brought us here, Manifest Destiny, being a Christian notion, right? What what was said about the rhetoric that Bush used is so interesting because 
it feeds into the myth of secularism altogether, right? The idea that he said the word crusade but didn't mean it in a religious way. Well, you know, whether or not you meant it is sort of irrelevant. The fact that it was the appropriate language to use proves that secularism is a myth, right? That in order to feed the American imagination and the American hunger for war, you had to use religious language. So it just goes to show how all of these things are intertwined. But it wasn't just people in Afghanistan or bin Laden who heard crusade and who basically used it or kind of felt validated by it. It was also white Christians who used it to justify their hatred of Muslim neighbors or confusingly sick neighbors who who lived here as well, but who were wearing turbans and started this whole rise in Islamophobia in the country, which made it unsafe for many Muslim people in many parts of the country to live, especially after September 11th. And that's something that you've also been exploring and talking about and bringing to the fore in your work. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. Look, crusade is as clear a dog whistle um, for us versus them as it gets, right? And in this particular case, crusades were Christian wars fought against Muslims. So that's not, that's not confusing. I think people really understand that. But it's also important to understand that a large swath of the American public is primed for this message. Certainly, you know, when we're talking about the right-wing evangelical community in the United States, I mean, that is a, a, a community that has had a very clear martial terminology, you know, w- baked within its Christianity, right? Ted Haggard, the, the uh, uh, sort of disgraced megachurch, you know, pastor, political influencer, um, would say that the Christian home is, is to be in a constant state of war, right? Mm-hmm. That um, Jerry Falwell, everybody knows who Jerry Falwell yes. is, um, often referred to the church as an, as an organized army equipped for battle, right? That he said the Sunday school is the attacking squad um, and the task of the missionary is to, quote, bombard our territory, to move out near the coast and shell the enemy, to, to set loose on the enemy's stronghold. He's referring to evangelization. He's, re- yes. he's referring to missionary activity. But this sort of marriage of, of Christianity and militarism, it has become so complete in um, in American identity and in the rhetoric that we use, that when the president of the United States uses this kind of language, there is, as I said, you know, a large swath of the public that completely understands what he is saying. They get the message very clearly. But let's not lose sight of the fact that there's a whole other swath of this country that maybe isn't evangelical, maybe isn't even Christian, but nevertheless has that same conception of American exceptionalism that is grounded in this idea as the chosen nation, the greatest nation on the, in the history of the world. You know, we hear that phrase all the time. We're the greatest nation. There is literally one category, global category, in which we are first in the world, and that's military our military and our economy, I should say. So there you go. The military and the economy is number one in the world. And there isn't another category, including press freedoms, including religious freedoms, in which we are number one in the world. And so you're absolutely right that this is this is deliberately meant to tap in to a particular viewpoint of what America is. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I don't think it's a, I don't think it is coincidence that, and this is not my um, uh, work. It's a, there's a great scholar of American evangelicalism named George Martinson, who's done a ton of work on evangelicals in the United States. And what he has discovered is that evangelicals are far, far more likely than any other Americans to sanction and support war for any reason. I don't mean just the war on terror. I mean any war. Um, Evangelicals are far more likely than any other Americans to support war. And evangelicals were, even at the end of the Afghan, Afghanistan war, um, more likely to support staying um, in that war zone than anyone else. If there's anything better than getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's, it's getting a few of your favorite things from McDonald's for less in the McDonald's app. Mm. Delicious. Order in the McDonald's app today. Right now, only in the app. Enjoy a breakfast sandwich for just $1, like a sausage McMuffin with egg. Offer valid one time per day from 429 to 512.24 at participating McDonald's. Must opt into rewards. Unholier Than Thou is brought to you by BetterHelp. What interferes with your happiness? Is something preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. You can connect in a safe and private online environment, and it's so convenient. You can start communicating in under 24 hours. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling. And you can send a message to your counselor anytime. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses, plus you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, all without ever having to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counselors if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. The service is available for clients worldwide, and there's a broad range of expertise available, which may not be locally available in many areas. There are licensed professional counselors who are specialized in depression, stress, anxiety, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, anger, and so much more. Anything you share on BetterHelp is confidential, plus it's convenient, professional, and affordable. And if you don't take our word for it, check out the testimonials posted daily on their site. BetterHelp is not a crisis line. So many people have been using BetterHelp that they're recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com unholy. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot unholy. Unholier Than That was brought to you by Bev. Bev is a female-founded canned wine brand on a mission to transform the alcohol industry as we know it, creating a voice for women where there has never truly been one, and doing so in a kind, approachable way. Their wines are dry, crisp, and a little fizzy, super refreshing, and delicious. They are all zero sugar and only three carbs and 100 calories per serving. They have six varietals, rosé, sauve blanc, pinot gris, pinot noir, and their recently launched sparkling rosé called Glam and Glitz. The cans may look cute and tiny, but each can is a glass and a half of wine, which is perfect for when you don't want to open a bottle of wine just for yourself. That means a 20 four pack is equal to eight bottles of wine and their four packs are great for gifting or hosting. They're perfect for New Year's goals like cutting back on sugar or drinking. Plus, Bev makes it easy to have a glass of wine and not overindulge. You can get two-day shipping straight to your door and shipping is always free with Bev. We've worked out a special deal for our listeners. Receive 20% off your first purchase plus free shipping on all orders. I suggest trying their best-selling ladies' night variety pack so you can check out all of their delicious varietals. Go to drinkbev.com unholy or use code unholy at checkout to claim this deal. That's D-R-I-N-K-B-E-V dot com slash unholy. Bev can also be found at retailers nationwide, including Target, Total Wine, BevMo, and more. 
This is important because you're touching on how this war, obviously even beforehand, but this war on terror and also September 11th helped to perpetuate this notion of a cultural kind of norm that Islam was affiliated with terrorism and also then, you know, it would it would become also subjugation of women and then, of course, the stoning of LGBTQ people. This became such a normative attitude and belief that when I was working at Teen Vogue and the rise in Islamophobia was so concerning, especially during the election of Donald Trump and afterwards, when we partnered with young Muslim women to share their own stories and to talk more about how they were perceived in American society, people would come up to me and say, it's so ironic that you're a gay person who's giving Muslim people a platform. People who were college educated, who voted Democrat, right? People who we assume would think better, right? Who would know better than to say something so bigoted. But again, This is a cultural norm that led to direct violence on on people who are walking down the street, going to work, hate crimes, et cetera. This sort of thing feeds into what you were talking about, America is the greatest nation on earth. That's a patriotic statement. Patriotic and patriarchy and paternalism all have the same root, which (laughs) all comes down to the father. It all comes down to this idea Right, the, uh, that we are reinforcing this paternalistic attitude mm-hmm. towards other nations. It's been, again, a part of our nation's history. And you've already pointed out how those things are not the entire truth, right, of Muslim nations. Um, but I think one of the things that I was grappling with as we were revisiting this concept of the war in Afghanistan is that those attitudes were still so pervasive, right? There were so many accounts, right, on social media saying we owe it to these women, these poor women, right? And it's not to say that we didn't owe it to those women. It's also to say, where is your own mirror of your own country? At the Mm -hmm. same time, this is all happening. We have Texas passing a draconian abortion ban that not even Margaret Atwood could have dreamt up. You know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying? Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And and I think it's it's it goes back to kind of how we started this conversation, right? That it's we can talk about unquestionably the problem in a lot of Muslim majority states with women's rights, the rights of LGBTQ, the rights of racial minorities. Those are real issues. The question is, are the people who are supporting these conflicts doing so because they have this kind of heart for gay people in Iran? You know, is that really what's what's moving you? Like, yes, I really, I, I so believe in, you know, women's education that I think we should bomb Afghanistan. Is that really where your mind is? Um, because if that's what you believe in, there are many, many things that you can do to promote both of those things, gay rights in mm-hmm. Iran or women's rights in Afghanistan. There are a number of actions that you can take that would be hugely supportive of those two groups. But the truth of the matter is that when you hear particularly people on the left use that kind of language, what they are doing, whether they're conscious of it or not, is adopting the terminology given to them by the right. The right couldn't give a fuck about gay people in Iran or women in Afghanistan, but they Mm -hmm. are more than happy to use those things as a way to promote this muscular Uh, American evangelical identity in which the United States is this God um, divinely blessed nation, the purpose of which is to spread its ideals um, around the world. But they know 
that if they use the human rights argument, then they can create a large enough net to bring in these voices that would you know, usually not engage with them on any subject. That's right. And you're right. Again, it's this way that we figure out how to define ourselves, particularly nowadays, you know, particularly as we are becoming, what, a generation uh, removed from becoming the first uh, minority majority country in the world. That's a big, big deal it also scares the shit out of a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And it is becoming increasingly difficult to say with confidence and any sense of unanimity what it means to be an American. And this is not a new thing. It's just part of human nature. The easiest way to identify yourself is in opposition to another. So just find another, whatever that other is, and use it to say what it means to be you. Even if, like you rightly point out, the same people who are decrying uh, the status of women in Afghanistan uh, are actively pursuing very similar ideas about the role of women in American society. So let's stay with that for a second, because this is, I think, where people get really stuck. And I think, and I understand why people get stuck here. I get stuck here, to be honest with you. I'm really interested to what you have to say here, because our culture as it exists, and I'm not talking just about American culture, I'm talking about really these kind of Western world powers, the way to settle conflict has traditionally, maybe most typically, most normally been through violence, right? War, sanctions are another form of violence, right? Because they do harm people who are on the ground, right? Not just the governments or the GDP of those governments, right? So a lot of our tactics about intervening um, and so-called helping are accomplished by means of violence. So I think what what we're trying to point to is like, how do you hold it to be true that we does we owe better to the people of Afghanistan, but also we shouldn't be talking about those folks with such a paternalistic language or mentality. We need to be talking about those folks and their plight with dignity. Um, and also, what? How do you also hold that like? A lot of people believe the United States does have an obligation to our world neighbors, to our other world powers, especially when there are massive human rights atrocities that are taking place. So I think the question is, you know, do you ever do we ever think that violence is going to be necessary or do we believe that peaceful alternatives are the way? And if so, what is a peaceful alternative that could possibly have worked in this world, in, or, or really, to be more pointed about it, in this particular situation. Yeah. Look, you're absolutely right. And this is a, a an issue that needs to be discussed because you're right. It's a very complex um, part of how we identify ourselves and how we um, function as a nation. Let me say very quickly that I am so glad that you emphasize that sanctions is a form of violence. I think people would be very surprised to learn that more Iraqis died as a result of Bill Clinton's eight years of sanctions against Iraq than died as a result of George Bush's eight years of war against Iraq. Oh, wow. I didn't far know more, that. Far more. By some estimates, wow. half a million Iraqis died um, as a result of those eight years of sanctions. Um so thank you for, for bringing that up. Listen, I am not a pacifist. I, I absolutely believe that there is a role for um, violence and warfare. 
And I also do believe there is, you know, such a thing as moral certitude, right? That there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. Um, the denial of human dignity, violence against non-combatants, um, the, you know, the murder of people because of their color of their skin or the God that they choose to worship or the people that they choose to love. These are wrong and they need to be addressed. And sometimes it does take violence to address them. The issue here is the motivation for that violence. The problem with the war in Afghanistan, that's a weird thing to say because there were so many problems, but what I'm right. trying... Yes, yeah, I get it. One of the, yeah. the major problems with the way that we conduct war as a form of foreign policy is that we conduct it as a form of foreign policy. That, we, In other <laughs> words, we went into Afghanistan to that's benefit clever. the United States. We went into Iraq to benefit the United States. We pretended that it was to help Iraqis and to help Afghans. But I mean, any uh, objective observer just has to look at the last 20 years to know that that was bullshit, right? Um, And certainly I can think of a dozen examples in which we are facing, you know, ethnic cleansing, genocide, apartheid, violence against non-combatants before our eyes. And not only are we not doing anything about it, uh, Myanmar, um, you know, the, yes, Uyghur, the, the Uyghurs, Uyghurs in yeah. China, but we are actively supporting it as we do in Israel. And so it, it becomes very difficult to start making these high-minded moral arguments for the use of violence in order to promote um, universal morals and human rights when we only do so in, if it benefits the United States. Right. Our track record's tainted. Exactly. So how can we be trusted when we do this shit all the time? Exactly. That's perfectly said. Yeah. How can we be trusted okay. when I'm we following. do this shit all the time? So what, what does a moral foreign policy look like? It looks like a, the promotion of a set of principles through a whole host of means, whether those are economic uh, means, both economic rewards and punishments, whether it means, um, uh, you know, bringing in uh, diplomatic means in order to create certain alliances, add pressure um, to countries the way that we've been trying to do, for instance, with Russia, um, or whether it actually means bringing in you know, military troops in order to impose uh, peace if, you know, uh, Eritreans are being slaughtered or if, you know, uh, there's there's genocide in Sudan or in Myanmar or what, what have you. There is a role for those for those things. It's just that it's we pretend that we we are using those actions um, through a moral patina when in reality what we are doing is just simply choosing our own interests um, in, in over the interests of these indigenous populations. Yeah. Do we have a moral obligation to support oppressed people around the world? Absolutely, we do. Uh, no question, we do. The question is: Is are we supporting them for their sake or for our sake? And I think that's the issue that that we sometimes get entangled on. Yes, that's really well put. You know, I think. There was a lot there. I'm sure a lot that folks are going to react to, no doubt. Um, But I think, you know, 
when we're talking about achieving peace in the world, you know, I, I understand you're not a pacifist. It is interesting to think that our first resort is sending in a military, yeah. right? Because it says a lot about a nation that its biggest budget goes towards armed warfare, you know, rather than investing in what kind of matrices of peace in the world could look like. And certainly, you know, even the concept of morality, right? You said we have a moral obligation. You know, our concept of morality is different than indigenous folks all over the world, right? Yes. You know, moral morality is also informed by living and growing up and being raised in a Christian society, no question. right? So, so morality also has its own vantage points and that complicates things. But if we don't understand the vantage points of the people that we want to intervene to help, you know, I think that that's where we get back into the trap of this kind of Christian and, and really white supremacist paternalism that just creates more havoc and, and really leaves more chaos than, than peace that was made in the first place. Our whole process of going about this is wrong. I, we could talk for, about foreign policy. This is so above my pay grade in my head. I'm more interested as we close, I'm more interested in what people should be taking away from this and how they are speaking where they are sending their money, how they are interacting with their own communities, and also how they continue to engage with this issue, right? Because the media cycle and how our consciousness is informed by what the media tells us and puts in front of our faces every day, I think is one of the more pernicious things about this conflict to really be aware of, right? The, the very confines of the American imagination are really shaped by what our politicians and our media tells us. And that limits who we have sympathy and empathy for. Um, and so to close, if we're talking about um, changing the script and moving forward from here for folks on the ground, folks going about their lives, what do you offer those folks? Well, maybe our, our listeners don't need to hear this necessarily, but the one sort of benefit of the Trump years is that it finally shattered the sort of idea of um, the American evangelical Christians as the so-called value voters or moral voters, right? The idea that um, somehow they, that the right in this country, and particularly the Christian right in this country, has a monopoly on, you know, on ethics and morality. Um, the overwhelming support of white evangelical Christians for a man who, whatever you think of his politics, was like the incarnation of, you know, the seven deadly sins, <laughs> you know, the, <laughs> the sort of walking, breathing, orange version of every woe that Jesus ever pronounced. Um, and the sort of bald-faced ability to just simply brush all that aside in exchange for what he explicitly promised evangelicals, which is political power, has not only broken evangelical Christianity, I think that's the most fascinating story of this next decade is where evangelical mm. Christianity goes from here, um, but also has shattered forever this idea that um, the right has the monopoly on morals and values. And so we're in a moment now in which what it means to be a value voter is transforming before our very eyes. And it is the left that is beginning to redefine morals and values in terms of 
taking care of the poor among us, the weakest among us, and the and social issues of social justice and the redistribution of power, um, uh, you know, gender rights. Those are the things that I think are suddenly now being discussed, you know, in these in these terms that we didn't used to talk terms that we used to only talk about abortion and gay marriage in, you know, and now we're talking about whether we should remove lead from water in those terms, whether, um, you know, the, the um, uh, housing moratorium, you know, the, the eviction moratorium um, should continue or not in the terms that the right used to talk about abortion. And I, to me, as, you know, a scholar of religions and an observer of American culture, I find that to be very exciting because it means that hmm. we're in this moment now in which we have an opportunity to kind of redefine um, the way that we talk about what it means to be American, like what actually is American exceptionalism. And so that to me is super exciting. The other thing that I would say is that I remember the, the beginning of the war on terror and the war in Afghanistan like it was yesterday, but it was two decades ago, which is weird, right? Like I'm pretty sure we had email, but we didn't have Twitter. We didn't have Facebook. We didn't have Instagram. We didn't have social media, all of these things that are now so baked into the way that we communicate with each other simply didn't exist back then. And so we're in a place now in which the kind of um, fracturing of uh, our attention spans and the way in which we get our information in these silos has become so complete that it's very easy to just live in our own sort of perfect bubbles in a way that that we couldn't, you know, 20 years ago. At the same time, we now have access to new sources of information, new sources of knowledge that we did not have 20 years ago. 20 years ago, people like me were writing op-eds in the New York Times trying our hardest to say, if we do this, we are going to fuck everything up. But it was very hard to get any attention because the gatekeepers that controlled the the media had a very clear agenda. Well, those gatekeepers mm-hmm. are gone. They've it's just it's been shattered, right? Um, Facebook is the primary news source, for better or worse, right now. For worse, honey. Yeah, way worse, way worse. Yeah. It's way worse. <laughs> but now, now the obligation sort of falls on us, right? Um, there were so many people I know, smart, engaged, liberal people who supported the war on terror, the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq. And then a few years later said, oops, I made a mistake because I didn't know anything. I didn't know what I needed to know. That is an okay excuse in 2002. That is an impossible excuse in 2021. If you don't know, it's your fucking fault. That's, it's your responsibility. So I think all of those things have created this moment right now and we talk a lot about how America is polarized and divided and that that's a bad thing. Why is that a bad thing? Why is that a bad thing? Right? I, it, it, America should be divided and polarized if what's at stake are these moral arguments about who is an, a, a really a human being, who deserves the same rights as everyone else. If you're on one side of this, well, then great. You're not on my side. I have no interest in reaching out to you. Um, a polarized country is not a bad thing, if you ask me, especially in hmm. this moment where we are 
we have an opportunity to redefine what America is, what it stands for in this next century. Um, what we saw in the last few years, what, we, what we're continuing to see right now with the, the sort of surge in white Christian nationalism and the sort of MAGA heads and all of that stuff, that to me is the inevitable backlash to the unstoppable progress and, ch and demographic change uh, that is taking place in this country. You're always going to have people who, maybe because they feel left behind, are going to react violently and uh, with extremism to fundamental changes in society. So maybe what we should focus on is less the reaction to that progress and the progress itself. That's really interesting. It's really interesting to process and to think about for sure. You know, one thing we uh, fall guilty of a lot as Americans, especially with, you know, so much of the elite academic institutions we have here and such a robust uh, media that we have here is that we think we have the answers, <laughs> right? And we automatically think our answer and our way is the right way. And how that plays out on an international stage has really been devastating to so many people all over the world. And it's and it's not the kind of, it's a kind of devastation that is multi-generational and that we are still feeling the ripple effects from and certainly a kind of devastation that will warrant, you know, in many ways, the seeking of revenge from the people we've wronged. And it, it is really hard to grapple with. There's been not a lot of discussion about how we help to create the anti-American sentiment yeah. abroad and how we help to create the Taliban. Yeah. Um, and instead, there's just been the continuation of the themes of paternalism that I think got us here in the first place. And um, I think that a lot of this conversation has helped to illuminate, you know, just where we sit and how we believed things maybe we shouldn't have and how maybe we still are believing things that um, are fundamentally flawed and are, are certainly at least worth re-examining. And when we talk about, just in closing, when we talk about Christianity, uh, I, I'd want to make clear, we're, I don't want to make a blanket assumption about every Christian. I am talking about Christianity as a superpower, as a world power. Yeah. Um, so it, it's not about the individuals. It is about the institutions themselves. So I just want to make that clear in closing. Yeah. But anyways, thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to say in closing? Thank you so much. It's been lovely. Just, just to your point, and I think it's a very smart one. I think, again, part of what we are now experiencing is the decline of the American century, right? As it used to be called. Yeah, that's right. Um, is again, to me, a good thing, right? I celebrate that decline like I celebrate our political polarization. I don't know why these are things to be sad about. The fact that the rest of the world now sees America unquestionably for what we actually are instead of what we pretend to be is a good thing um, because we are in a moment of, of profound transition in this country. And the quicker we dispense with this fantasy <laughs> of who we think we are and the more we really zero in on who we actually are. And the, the you know, and, I, and I'm using this term derogatorily on purpose, the third world problems that we have here, right? From our crumbling infrastructure to our 
out-of-control poverty and hunger rates, um, to our racial violence, um, to our profound anti-democratic um, population, you know, those are things that can't be swept under the rug anymore. And as right. horrific as these last four years have been, as troubling as these last 20 years have been, the one positive that I keep coming back to is that the curtain has been pulled back and there is no more pretending anymore. And it's now time, I think, for us to begin the process of figuring out who we want to be in this coming century because who we thought we were, who we pretended we were, uh, has completely crumbled, not just here in the U.S., but around the world. And that's going to cause violence and conflict, no question about it. We're seeing it in our streets right now. But out of that, I think, could rise something, well, truly exceptional. And to bring it full circle to the secularism concept, rather than letting what you're talking about sink you into despair, we need to find the wherewithal as individuals to actually drive us to creating and being a part of rebuilding That's right. the country that we want to live in. Now and is I the think time. Now is the time. Yeah. So divides or not, I think the whole system makes us feel disempowered. And that is exactly how it was designed. Right. And so in finding the ways, even in which you can just engage in your own community, in your own backyard, um, in your own local politics are such crucial ways to be imagining a better future for our children, our grandchildren, ourselves, you know, whoever, whoever we're doing it for. Reza, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. I really, really enjoyed this, Philip. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you so much again to Reza. And thank you so much for listening. I know that there was a lot tackled in this episode and I hope you found it helpful. Please let me know what you thought. You can reach out to me on social media. You know where to find me on Instagram. And of course, uh, you can find me here again next week for a brand new episode of Unholier Than Now. See you next time. Okay, that's all we have for our show today. I hope you enjoyed it and make sure you tune in next week. Same time, same place for more Unholy Goodness. Unholier Than Thou is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producer is me, Philip Picardi. Our producer is Leslie Martin and Brian Semmel is our associate producer. Our editors are Kareem Duwady, David Grinbaum, and Sarah Gibalaska. The theme music is by Taka Yasuzawa. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed.